Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. So in the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. During this new episode of Founder Series, we are sitting down with Cody Fink, co-founder and CEO of Brimstone Energy. Brimstone Energy creates the world's first carbon-negative Portland cement without changing the product or the price. Brimstones has developed a cement formula that has successfully removed cement-making process emissions and yet is scalable and cost-effective. I was excited to speak with Cody, a natural lover who began his career as a chemist working developing wastewater treatment technology at Caltech before realizing that if he wanted to make an impactful change, he needed to start a business to sell new technologies able to tackle environmental problems. He therefore went in pursuit of finding a solution to the lesser known environmental pollutants and settled on cement. Currently a big challenge with great potential climate impact since cement production currently contributes to roughly 5.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. In this episode, we will learn more about the often overlooked cement industry who the big players are, what gaps Cody discovered in the market, and how tackling the carbon emissions from cement production can have a big impact on climate goals. Cody then 
goes into the details of cement production and how he plans to scale his cement process and promote his solution as the only one that tackles cement process emissions. Cody then gives us an overview of the biggest challenges in the market and what the main opportunities and risks of his business model are. During the second part of the discussion, Cody will give his secret sauce for early stage founders looking to fundraise by giving his tips based on his last successful funding round of 55 million USD. Finally, he will share how he has managed to maintain a good work-life balance as a busy CEO and some of the books he found useful. Cody, welcome to the show. Hi Cody, welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and learn more about what you're up to with Brimestone Energy. It sounds that a lot is happening. Uh, as you guys made the news very recently, announcing a 50 million uh, fundraising round. So congrats. I'm sure there's a lot to share and I can't wait as I have a ton of questions for you. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks very much, Guillaume. I'm very happy to be here. So before we start, uh, can you give us a 30-second intro about uh, Brimstone Energy? Yeah, very quickly. So the purpose of Brimstone is to decarbonize the world's cement industry. So cement is responsible for about 5.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions, uh, which is about the same as cars. Cars are 6.5%. Uh, and yeah, that's good enough, probably. So let's start from the top, and I'm sure we're going to go deeper into uh, all of that. Um, but let's start from the top, as I uh, we always like to do. It's like kind of like putting back the, the speaker into the center of the uh, interview as a, as a human. So tell us a bit more about your personal story and background. I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you do or love to do besides building, you know, Brimstone? And what makes you feel inspired, like your best self? As I always ask, like, who is Cody? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so I think I got into, uh, or got a, I got inspired to do the work that I'm doing through a lot of different ways, I think. Um, you know, one way is, you know, I, I, I felt very lucky um, as, you know, growing up in the United States uh, and growing up in Seattle and, and, you know, having parents who could pay for my education um, you know, it's a, a sort of a, a rare thing um, in the world and even a rare thing in the United States. And, you know, I just I, I felt very lucky. And like through through that education, I got the chance to, you know, travel quite a bit um, and, and go to you know places where there's a lot more poverty and, and, you know, human and environmental suffering. And 
I felt like I wanted to, you know, use my job, you know, or my career to, you know, that seemed like a much more worthwhile cause to me than, you know, working on problems, you know, that affect, you know, humanity and living things. So that's one way that I got into what I'm doing. But another way is I've, you know, always been sort of inspired by the natural world. So growing up in Seattle, United States, there's this very large mountain that's um, you can see from the city called Mount Rainier. And, you know, Mount Rainier is covered in glaciers. Uh, it's a big volcano. Um, and there's, you know, lots of climbing and skiing on it. And um, it's, you know, one of those things where, you know, not many people go do it in, in the world um, or in, you know, in Seattle, but there's quite a number of people who go to it in Seattle. So as a kid, it's just, oh, this is amazing. And um, when I was growing up, I have a, you know, pretty clear, clear memory of, um, you know, going to the movies and watching Al Gore's In Inconvenient Truth and, you know, feeling that climate change was something that was going to melt melt the glaciers on Mount Rainier that I looked at every day in Seattle, or at least when it was not raining, it rains quite a bit in Seattle. And I thought like from a bait, like sort of, you know, just very like a childhood perspective, like that was, you know, just sort of devastating for me. And anyway, I, you know, I think a lot, I <laughs> having a lot to do with just being able to see Mount Rainier in Seattle, I just uh, it really inspired by the beauty of nature and, and, you know, also wanted to work to sort of protect that. And, I've got, you know, became very interested and excited by lots of outdoor activities. So I, you know, um, I guess as a kid and, and, and I started skiing and rock climbing and mountain biking and, and lots of, lots of mountain sports. And I was lucky enough to have a family that on vacation, um, we went to like a, a mountain town in Idaho where there's a ski resort. Uh, and um, you know, I could, I could spend the, we often spent summers there and I could spend the summers mountain biking and climbing and, and the winter skiing, you know, when we would go sort of on holidays around Christmas time. And, you know, I, th these have sort of been my, my passions outside of work, just trying to interact with natural beauty as much as possible and, um, you know, climb mountains and, and, um, go, go hiking and running and, and just be outside as much as possible. And that's really what I like to do with my free time. You know, I, I try to spend the weekends going camping and hiking as much as I can. And, and, you know, like in some sense, this is like, that's part of the point of the work that I do. You know, I want to, you know, I want to work on something that can help um, make sure that the natural world flourishes and climate change is a big threat to human life and also, you know, non-human life. Mm -hmm. And both of those things are very sacred to me. And so I, I like, I like the idea of working on things to, you know, protect what I, what I like to do. Um, and yeah, that's, you know, I, one of the things, one of the stories I sometimes tell is, so in the United States, um, the Colorado river is a big river that really runs through the Rocky mountains and, um, and, and out into the sea of Cortez, which is sort of in, in Mexico and, there's this national park called the Grand Canyon and it's a very deep canyon in the Colorado River and this winter just before we started fundraising I spent 21 days camping and, and whitewater kayaking in on the Grand Canyon with with uh, 13 friends and you know it, that's like one of the experiences where it's like well 
what's the point of the work that I do? This is the point, you know, I, yeah. I started at one dam and finished at another and there was water scarcity and like both of the dams, the reservoirs behind the dams were yeah. almost completely empty. Um, and drought in the American Southwest is where we have some the most data for, you know, understanding the impacts of climate change and climate change is a huge factor there. And like, this is like could draw a direct line of like, this is an activity I really like to do whitewater kayaking and it's directly threatened. So that's sort of like a very personal thing that motivates me as well as sort of the bigger societal things I mentioned in the beginning. But thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think it's, uh, it's very precious to, to understand like what is the, you know, the flame and the drivers behind uh, every entrepreneur uh, and uh, especially even more in climate tech. So tell us a bit more about your, your different uh, academic experience because you don't have like that many professional experience prior to uh, the launch of uh, Brimstone, which is quite unique as well. Uh, you're still very young. Uh, but uh, what did you learn along that, uh, that way that you would not have if you had a different journey? Uh, I mean, what do you believe gave you an edge to start uh, Brimstone? Yeah, yeah, thanks for the question again. So I'm like, I just give you a brief history of my, of my professional experience <laughs> and academic experience. So I'm a chemist by training. I, I got a, a bachelor's degree in chemistry, and then I got a master's and PhD in environmental science and engineering. I guess there is some more detail there. So I originally, af after my undergraduate degree, I wanted to work on, um, you know, I, I wanted to work on big social or environmental problem. And I went into an MD PhD dual degree program, which is, um, you get both a medical degree and a um, and a you know PhD, and it takes nine years after your uh, your bachelor's degree, and it's a very long degree. Um, and I went I you know went went there because I really wanted to understand like the interactions between environmental problems and and human health, and and thought I could you know have this really diverse career. At least that's what I told myself. But really, I think I wanted to do the medical degree because I you know had concerns about job security. And, and when I went to medical school, um, I very quickly became very unmotivated and very uninterested in the, um, in, in the work. And I think that one of the biggest things that I felt, at least in the United States, is that I was totally replaceable. As in, I think if I remember the statistics correctly, only 40% of the people who apply to medical school get into medical school, which means that if I had not gone to medical school, someone else who was, you know, just as good as me would have taken my spot. And there's so many high, you know, very highly qualified applicants who don't get in. Um, the, the system would have just shuffled candidates around and, and someone else would have taken my spot. So I really felt like, you know, that career path just didn't feel like it could have a huge impact. <laughs> and it was like that kind of realization that really drove me into, I think, where I'm going where I then went, went to my PhD and, and I wanted to work on something that people were not really working on. Because again, you know, those are, seems like the most important problems. Because if there's problems that everyone wants to work on, they're going to get solved if they can get solved. But if there's problems that no one really wants to work on, they might not get solved unless you go work on them. So I, um, I started with wastewater in, for applications in low-income countries, right? So in like the developing world where wastewater treatment is a big problem, um, this is not a very, you know, this is not a very highly studied topic. There are not a lot of research dollars that go into this compared to, you know, clean energy, for example. Um, 
and I really liked that it, you know, allowed me to travel a lot and I, you know, got to, you know, work on very interesting projects and see very, you know, diverse parts of the world and, you know, also go do outdoor activities in those places. Right. I, you know, I was able to go climbing or skiing and, you know, India, Nepal and, and, you know, New Zealand and lots of, lots of other places through, you know, this work, it was all very motivating. Um, but then, you know, our, our funding source, which was the, the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation, they sort of were very clear that, you know, if you develop a technology to solve a problem, someone needs to pay for that technology. And the best way to get someone to pay for it is to start a business, to sell it. And I, that, and that made some sense to me. Um, because I couldn't figure out how else people could pay for it, um, except for maybe raising taxes a lot, which seems fine, but I didn't really feel like I had the capacity to figure out how to how to get people to do that. <laughs> so um, and started, I, I thought about, you know, starting a business with this wastewater treatment technology I was developing. And so I, so I then uh, started looking at other problems and, because I sort of gave up on that. And I think that this is like, again, the idea for impact, like if I'm, if I can't, you know, the technology could be great, but I want to have a high impact. So if no one can buy it, the technology will not work. Right. So I then cycled through a few other technologies, first hydrogen and then cement, um, because hydrogen for fertilizer and then cement are, you know, more areas that have large environmental implications, mm -hmm. but not very many people are working on. Um, and ultimately I settled on cement because the economics seemed like they would work out really well. And I sort of came at this, um, I think I came at this from a very practical perspective as in, I want to work on a global environmental problem. And I think I know how, like, and starting a business seems, seems like the, the most straightforward way. At least this is what I maybe learned from the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation. Um, so how, how can I make sure that the business goals are actually aligned to the environmental goals and with this current, you know, with brimstone and, and making cement, that's basically the business that I figured out where I could get the economic goals to align exactly with the greenhouse emissions goals. And that's what, um, and that's where, where I am today. So before we go uh, and, and we start to go into details about uh, Brimstone, we'd like to, to zoom out and kind of get a sense of the overall uh, context that you are surfing on with, uh, with Brimstone. So let's try to get your overview on the cement and concrete landscape today. I mean, if you can share with us like some data, what is the global amount of uh, concrete and cement produced annually? Uh, maybe their uh, contribution uh, to the global uh, GSG emission. Uh, and maybe if you can tell us like a little bit more like and uncover that, like, I mean, where are the emissions coming from in the production process? Uh, because I think it's something uh, uh, that varies and, and, and quite important. And, uh, and why is it so hard to decarbonize uh, the, that industry according to so many people? Yeah, yeah, uh, great questions. Uh, so I'll start, yeah, I'll start with some numbers. So cement, of course, is the binder in concrete and concrete is the building material, as you know. So um, so here's some rough numbers, right? So there are four or five billion with a B tons of cement produced every year. And cement is about 10% of, of um, concrete, sometimes a bit higher, sometimes a bit lower. Um, so that means that there's about, you know, 40 to 50 billion with a B tons of concrete made every year. 
And that actually makes concrete the most consumed human-made material on the planet. So the only the only thing that is consumed more is you know for industrial uses is water, which is hard to argue is human-made. Um, but so it's a it's a really huge thing. Um, and then it's responsible for um, about five and a half percent of greenhouse gas emissions, um, or seven and a half percent of CO two emissions. And let me be clear: so CO two emissions represent about seventy five percent of greenhouse gas emissions, or anthropogenic, or you know, mm-hmm. human caused greenhouse gas emissions. A lot of times, people talk in CO two. I like to talk in greenhouse gas because that's the whole problem. So you may read other places that it's seven and a half, or often rounded to eight percent of CO two emissions which is true, but you know, the more accurate picture is it's five and a half percent of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, To put that in perspective, cars uh, are about six and a half percent of greenhouse gas emissions. So a very similar number. If I remember right, planes are, I think they're 1% of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And yeah, so those are just, you know, that's some context. Maybe planes are 2%, I forget now. Anyway, that, so that yeah, that's some context of the scale. So cement is a very, very big problem. Um, so the is the next part is yeah, where the emissions come from. So cement is is a pretty interesting problem, especially from the chemi- from a chemist perspective, because the CO two emissions are not just from energy. So in almost all cases, CO two, which again is 75 percent of greenhouse gas emissions typically comes from burning a fossil fuel. So natural gas, coal, oil, or, you know, petrol, gasoline, um, burning some fossil fuel that creates carbon dioxide emissions is going to the atmosphere. So that's, you know, almost all CO2 emissions are are produced energy. And if, you know, therefore people say, well, if we can just figure out how to make clean energy at a low enough cost, we can replace all of those energy emissions. And that's great. That's a huge number of emissions, but cement, Cement also burns fossil fuels, but only about 40% of, of the CO2 emissions are a direct result of burning a fossil fuel. The, rem- the majority of the emissions are something we call process emissions. So process emissions um, come from the actual chemistry of making the thing. So um, I'll do a brief chemistry lesson here. So, so cement today is made from a, a lock. Yeah. Cement today is made from a rock called limestone. Um, limestone is the chemical formula is calcium carbonate or CaCO3. And what that means is there's CO2 that's inside the rock, right? The rock looks very hard. So it's sort of hard to imagine a gas being part of the rock, but that's just how the chemistry is. The rock is, you know, about 50% by mass CO2. And if you heat this rock up enough, the rock decomposes and releases the CO2. And um, that's, and, and, and then you're just left with calcium oxide. That's what's left over or also called lime. Um, and then calcium oxide is what you go on to turn into Portland cement. And, and, or that's, you know, that's the normal type of cement to Portland cement. That's the industry jargon. And um, what that means is even if you were to use 100% clean energy, 60% of the CO2 emissions would persist because they're still using that rock, which contains CO2 emissions. And that's also why people say it's a 
problem that's difficult to decarbonize. And I think what they really mean is it's, you know, you have to think about it differently, right? It's, it's not just the, you know, people are very used to thinking about energy problems, um, which makes sense, right? The, by far the biggest piece of the pie of greenhouse gas emissions is energy. So it makes sense that everyone has been thinking about energy for a long time. But now we have to look at the other emissions that are different than energy and you have to think differently about, and that's cement. And that's what, you know, people, I think, believe that's what people say, it's difficult to decarbonize really because it's different. So how is the, the traditional, I mean, cement and concrete industry structure today? I mean, what are the main players and how is it organized? I mean, can you give us an overview of the, the forces in place and why are they incentivized to find alternatives or, or not? Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, so this, the cement industry is you know, fairly consolidated. I forget the exact numbers, but I think it's, um, well, you know, it depends if you include China or not. I tend to include China because China is part of the world and we all share one atmosphere. <laughs> so yeah, if we want to decar decarbonize cement, then we better include China. But lots of these statistics don't include China. But, um, you know, there's, there's um, I think there's five companies that, including China, control like 75% of the cement production in the world, maybe at 60%. So, you know, the, there's, there's Wholesome, which is a European company that is, um, you know, the biggest or second biggest in the world, depending on how you, you know, how you think about China. Um, and then there's, um, I think three major Chinese cement companies. Um, and we, uh, Chinese building materials. Um, and, and I forget there's, there's one other, um, And then there's several other large, there's a few other large um, companies. So Heidelberg, um, giant company, CRH is, is um, a more, a newer, but giant cement company. And Semex is a Mexican company that has, you know, market dominance in the United States. Um, and typically these cement companies also own, um, they own cement plants and they also own concrete Plant. So that's where they turn their cement into the building material. So they're they're pretty vertically integrated. You know, they own everything from the original quarry where they quarry the limestone to make Portland cement. Then they also own the quarry where they quarry gravel and sand to make concrete. And they own the cement production facility and the concrete production facility. The one part that they don't own today is uh, this ingredient called supplementary cementitious materials. So it's another necessary ingredient in cement. Um, and that ingredient is actually the waste product of burning coal in either a coal fire power plant or a blast furnace. So that's, you know, fly ash or slag. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, really amorphous silica with very, various amounts of, of calcium in it. And um, those, so yeah, so anyway, the, the, these giant companies are fairly consolidated. They, they you know, they've been around for a really long time. And in general, what that does when you make the same product via the same process for a really long time is the scale increases and um, the willingness to move quickly or change quickly decreases, um, which all makes sense, right? So these companies, they're all trying to compete with each other on price because they have the same product. So they're, you know, their business model strategies to compete with each other. And Um, you know, the, the first thing you might do is you might say, well, there's not much, you know, there's not much major, um, 
uh, innovation that's that can happen in the on the production side because we've been, really been doing it for the same way for a long time. So we're going to cut the budget of our R and D department so that we can save some money um, and and, and uh, makes and yeah uh, make cement for cheaper and and, and therefore compete on price. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the all of these companies are also very very um resistant to or or, or they, they're very not incentivized to change very much because they have a very comfortable market position you know they're huge they're all um you know tens if not hundreds of billion billions of dollars in revenue every year um and and why you know it, the the risk of doing something new is huge because they're already doing so well Mm-hmm. So it's a, and then the, the other issue is with scale, right? So you can always achieve uh, lower production prices by going bigger. Um, and if you can be very smart with your business model, like all of these cement companies have been, and you can um, figure out how to optimize shipping and demand and supply and everything, then you can just build a giant plant that costs half a billion dollars or even $2 billion to build. Um, and have enormous equipment that saves a lot of, you know, production cost, um, and therefore you can compete on price, and and that's great for you know for the price of cement, um, but it's it's challenging for a, a startup to think about entering the market because now if the startup wants to compete on price or actually if he actually wants to directly compete with these companies, they have to figure out how to get a billion dollars to build a plant at that scale or something like that, so. It's um, it's a it's a very interesting and very challenging. Market. Mm-hmm. So, if you step back and and you look at that with your own experience in the market, and maybe you have the chance to look also at your uh, competitors who are also trying to, uh, in a way, to decarbonize the cement and concrete industry. So, do you think there is a, a need for new regulation, uh, or is it because the, the green premium that you guys are, you know, the, the solution that you are able to put on the market is still uh, too expensive to be, uh, you know, deployed uh, at scale? Uh, I mean. What needs to happen to, in a way, accelerate this uh, this deployment uh, at at scale? I mean, and in which timeline do you think it's feasible, according to you? Yeah, so it's a really good question. So, first, I want to level set, right? So, um, industrial processes to go through a global transition, you know, history tells us that it takes at least fifty, and probably more like one hundred years for global transitions to happen. Um, so there's lots of data on, you know, energy transitions, for example, um, where we've, you know, had wide scale adoption of, of coal and oil and um, natural gas and hopefully now renewables, although the adoption is still fairly limited globally. Um, and it just takes a really long time. And, you know, like for example, uh, Tesla, I think, you know, Tesla started selling electric or sorry, Tesla was founded, I think, in 1998, maybe 2002. Anyway, it's around the, the turn of the century, um, not the old one, the new, the most recent <laughs> turn of the century. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, before that, electric cars were being sold. Like, for example, GM had an electric car that, you know, was being sold in, in the 1990s. But even now, you know, what? 25 years later, um, 
the electric cars is something like 1% market penetration, right? So these things that even in our heads we think are take are very fast because I think because we see a lot of headlines, it's all very exciting. They're not fast. <laughs> like these new transitions, you know, solar was invented in um, 70s and first company was maybe the early 2000s. I think first solar was 2001 or something. Um, and, you know, solar as a fraction of total energy supply, I think globally it's like 6%, maybe it's 11%. Either way, it's again been 25 years and, and or it's something like five or 6% or maybe at most 11% of total energy. Um, it's a little better when you just look at electricity. I mean, the thing um, is like, we don't still... have like those 60 years or hundred years in front of us to, uh, to adopt that. So uh, what right. do you think is so, possible? So... I mean, do you still have a hope or you just say, okay, let's go for the, the 60 year run or <laughs> before getting- Yeah, I, I never give up hope because do fix fixing it at some point will always be better than never fixing it right <laughs> so it's never people say like oh it's hopeless it's never hopeless it's just better and worse <laughs> you know so but i also want to be realistic okay so so what can what can change things what can make things yeah. go faster um and i think you asked about policy and and i think in order to make things go faster we need policy because the market is not fast enough without policy um i think that to be very clear if you're if if your company sort of needs a carbon tax or needs policy to be adopted, it will not be adopted globally because things are, even when they're just straight up cheaper, they're slow enough, right? Cheaper things still take 80 years to be fully adopted, but things that are more expensive, no one wants something that's more expensive um, because it's more expensive. That sucks. <laughs> if, <laughs> if it's yeah, uh, this green premium problem, you know what I mean? Like what uh, Bill Gates that, is that's uh, right. mentioning everywhere and like Chris Saka is saying, you need to make something that's cheaper, sexier, and, and, and better for the consumer, and that's it. That's green or not, people will take it. Exactly, and it's a hard problem, but you know, we think our process can be cheaper. Um, I, I, I think it clearly will be cheaper once it's at scale. So some things in policy we need is we need help to get to scale quickly. And I, honestly, I think the money is there, right? We just, um, we, we, we just raised a, a round, and, which was you know, certainly big enough to get to our next milestone. And when we get to that milestone, we'll raise another round. And, I see a lot of pathways to get that capital. So I, I you know, uh, I think that that take the, the, the money will be available. Um, and then, you know, more money is always, is always better. Um, but I think policy plays can play a big role. So again, these big cement companies, they don't have much incentive to change. We need the government to provide that incentive to, to change. You know, we need to, the, the government to make it, um, necessary that the so necessary for these companies to change that they you know do something they usually want wouldn't which would be interact with the startup very early days and most importantly <laughs> interact with the startup in a way that doesn't preclude that startup from interacting with other companies because if you know these big companies were to exclusively license technology from brimstone or something then that would you know could potentially kill brimstone's ability to be able to work globally um because you know we, we don't know what that cement company would want to do with the technology, so it's um so so you know policy will play like is 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 a necessary thing to do things at the speed we want. Um, we saw policy be very effective, um, you know, for companies like I mentioned previously, like Tesla and First Solar. So in in California, um, there's a policy called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, which essentially 
sets up a cap and trade system for for fuel that put and that put enough pressure on existing car companies that there was you know that they had to buy credits from tesla and it made mm-hmm. it made room for tesla in the market similar for full for solar in germany like first solar entered the market in germany and, and started building solar solar power plants in germany because germany had really strong policy to you know stop being dependent on coal and stop using coal and you know that do, worked do really see, well to jumpstart for solar do you see any incentivized yeah. like i mean regulation already in place or upcomings and maybe do you see a difference between the eu and the North America, U.S., Canada, Mexico, uh, or maybe China. China probably not, but yeah. Well, you know, China's interesting. We'll talk about that later. But I right now I see some policy that I'm interested in, but for the most part, um, it's tackling what I believe to be the wrong problem, right? So most other companies that are trying to decarbonize cement are trying to put a new material um, to replace Portland cement with a different material. Uh, and what and they need new policy in order to you know allow those materials to you know those new materials to be used in building in, in buildings we make portland cement so we don't need to wait for that um right we, we could we can start going so i think we what we need is the policy that a lot of other companies also will need but they don't need it until their material can actually be used right so so sort of the policy that we need is is things similar to the low carbon you know, fuel standard, like we need a low carbon cement standard, which um, pushes cement industry to, um, uh, to put, yeah, pushes the cement industry to, you know, put our, you know, put our technology into the market. Um, uh-huh. Or we need a, um, you know, basically we heavy, heavy regulation to in- incentivize old plants to turn into new, new style plants. Um, okay. And I don't mean direct replacement. I mean shutting one down and, and 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 starting, and starting over. And I don't care, you know, I don't care who owns that plant if it's Heidelberg or Polsim or whatever, as long as it's a process that doesn't make CO two and also doesn't limit it, everybody else from using that process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's amazing. But and also just you know, China. I actually think that China. It's it's complicated with China because the data is so is so scarce. But China does have a pretty good track record of getting things done pretty quickly. You know, like they've they've developed from a pretty low income country to a pretty high income country in a remarkably short amount of time. Um, so I think China has the power to decarbonize the industry, and they've said that they're interested in it. And I think mm-hmm. that you know they've you know if if they if they put you know, decarbonizing heavy industry into a five-year plan, they'll do it, you know? Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, they, 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 they might use the sticks, which sometimes, you know, when the, the timeline is too short, uh, you know, policymakers, I mean, a different uh, different degrees to, to use the stick, but uh, I think definitely like a, a need for policies in place and like that really create constraints uh, is more than necessary. So let's thank you for giving so much like context around like the, the industry that uh, you're evolving on. So let's go deeper into uh, Brimstone Energy now. Um, I mean, you already covered a bit like the, the story behind uh, the original gap that you identified. Um, so in a way, can you just like reframe a little bit this initial gap that you identified with uh, Brimstone? I mean, like why uh, you launched it and, and I mean, why did in a way Brimstone had to exist, you know, have to exist? Yeah. So we developed a, you know, a criteria for decarbonization 
um, really in in any industry, but we look specifically at cement because that was a, a low something that people were not working on. And the criteria was threefold. So the first is in order to decarbonize cement, you um, like there are three things that are necessary. The first is making the exact same materials as in made before. Um, and that's it, like we talked about, that's the statement of time scale. The second is this process needs to be a lower cost process to make cement or as we say, a rational solely economic actor needs to choose the brimstone process over a conventional process. Um, and then the third is, and this is a little bit more wonky, but um, the energy consumption for producing cement is about as low as it can get. It's, a, it's really a pretty low energy consumption process when you take into account what is thermodynamically possible, right? What, like what is allowed by the laws of physics. So it's unrealistic to think that like we might be able to use half as much energy or a third less energy, but there's no way we're gonna use 60% less energy or 90% less energy. And right now, you know, the cost of heat is such that heat is commonly 10 times cheaper than electricity right? and 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 heat is never like it's 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 never less than 50 percent cheaper than electricity and the current process to make cement uses heat so if we were to use you know electricity or clean electricity there's no world where we wouldn't be at least twice as expensive in terms of in or or Let's say we use half as much energy, which is probably the thermodynamic limit. <laughs> There's no world that we wouldn't be, you know, the exact same price, even if we used only the cheapest energy. And it turns out the cheapest energy is only available like 20% of the time because it's wind or solar. And um, therefore, we're like, okay, in order to be cheaper, so to follow rule two, we actually need to use heat because there's there's just no way that you can be cheaper without doing that. Mm -hmm. So we decided that we need to use heat and, and today, unfortunately, the cheapest source of heat is a fossil fuel. Hopefully, you know, there are many technologies that are looking to change this, you know, Antor Energy, Rondo Energy, or to, to name a couple. Um, but there's, it, yeah, it's, um, it's a hard, it's a, it's a hard problem. So we said, okay, well, if we're going to be cheaper, we're probably gonna have to use heat. And therefore, we may have to use a fossil fuel. And therefore, if we use a fossil fuel, we better be certain that our process is still near zero emissions, even with a fossil fuel, because, and like, really, this is like hedging. It's like, we want to be a zero emissions technology. And if we're wrong and we're like way off, then we want a huge amount of room to still be better <laughs> so that we're certain we're not making the world a worse place, right? Like my nightmare would be to develop a cheaper process that is more emissions intensive, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so we, um, so that was all, you know, those are the three criteria, lower emissions said very simply, um, same product, cheaper, lower emissions. And I looked at that for fertilizer and for cement and looked at the market. And, and I felt like this technology that I had for fertilizer or sorry, excuse me, for cement had the best shot or the best chance of meeting those three criteria. And that's when I decided to start the company. And that's why, you know, met my co-founder and, and convinced him to join. And, you know, we moved, you know, we started moving forward. So on the product side, and you started to, to cover that a little bit. Um, I mean, you guys have this bold statement, like making salmon carbon negative without changing the product or price. 
uh, and I think this is pretty bold uh, and you already like covered a little bit but like for non-technical listeners you know if you could walk us through the, the production process and explain in detail the characteristics of uh, of your end product I mean how do you decarbonize that I mean this concrete that you are decarbonized or cement that you decarbonized uh, I mean how does it differ from the, this so-called Portland cement uh, and how is your pilot uh, plant that you guys have uh, work? I mean, where's the magic, uh, the secret recipe that uh, that you guys have there? Yeah, so we can talk about that. I, first, I want to address the boldness of it. You know, so I agree that unfortunately in the world of clean tech, it is bold. But in the world of like normal companies, it's not bold. <laughs> it's like, it's actually maybe even weak. You know, it's like, you know, if I came to you and I said, I want to develop and I, I have a new way to make a computer, but it's more expensive <laughs> then, but it's, you know, but it's a little better for the environment. You'd be like, okay, great. <laughs> I'm not going to, I don't care. Like people want cheaper computers. They don't want more expensive computers. You know, so it's like what we see that statement of is like, Hey, we understand that for, for something to be globally adopted, it's gotta be cheaper. Mm -hmm. Right. Or it's got to, you know, at very least it has to be the same price, you know? So like when we say that, and, and it's, it's really just a statement of the pillars that I just described. Uh, it's like, you know, look, we recognize that, you know, we're very serious. We need to decarbonize. This is what we're building. And if it's not this, we don't think it's going to work. Um, okay. So that, that, that said, that being said, how do we do that? <laughs> okay. So um, for non-technical persons, huh? yeah. <laughs> for non-scientists. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Yeah, so, so we'll start with the cheaper part. So right now, in order to make cement, you mix Portland cement, which is what comes out of a cement plant, and supplementary cementitious materials. So as I mentioned a little earlier, supplementary cementitious materials are the waste product from a coal fire power plant or, or, um, or making steel from a you know, primary production of steel in a blast furnace um, or a basic oxygen furnace. And... Um, those two materials are globally getting scarce. Uh, and the reason they're getting scarce is because renewables are cheaper than coal for electricity. Also where natural gas is available is cheaper than coal for electricity. Although, you know, I think the you know, Russian invading Ukraine has created some complexities around availability of natural gas. Um, but regardless where na natural gas is available, coal plants are shutting down because natural gas is cheaper. Uh, and it's the same for steel. So we found that recycling steel using an electric arc furnace, which produces almost no slag, is much cheaper than you know using coal to make steel. So there's this whole story, and we've seen lot. There's lots of data around it. Coal has been on the decline as a fraction of global energy um, energy production, and that means that the waste products from burning coal are also on the decline. Um, but the waste products for burning coal are an essential component of producing cement at the price points that we like to see and also the strengths and densities and everything. And we saw this is a huge opportunity. Like this is right now how this, how the industry works is a very complicated supply chain where you have to go buy, you know, waste product from coal from several countries away and ship it in and have talked to 10 different suppliers. And it's a huge amount of cost. Whereas like, well, what if we could develop a process where we make both Portland cement and the supplementary cementitious material in the same product at the same place that we would you know eliminate all the supply chain complexities so that's what we did um we developed this process that would make both and because it makes both it can be cheaper and that's sort of how we can be cheaper 
so the carbon negative point is okay well we're gonna so um i described these pr process emissions already um these are the emissions that come from the rock directly we we start with a rock that does not have CO2 in it. So from the beginning, we eliminate 60% of the emissions. So the only emissions we have is from energy, if that energy were to be a fossil fuel. As I mentioned today, fossil fuels are the, are the lowest cost um, form of energy, fossil fuels for heat. And so, so let's assume we're using a fossil fuel for the sake of argument. Well, it also turns out that our process produces a waste product that permanently sequesters CO2, right? So if you can, basically the way to understand this is limestone has CO2 in it, it's a rock. And mm -hmm. by heating limestone up, you can release the CO2 from the limestone. But then by taking the, the other product, the lime, and, and letting it sit at a cold temperature, it will reabsorb that CO2 and turn back into limestone. Well, this is true of both calcium and magnesium, as it turns out. And our product makes a lot of magnesium species as a waste product. And when we make magnesium waste product, that will reabsorb CO2 and turn into magnesium carbonate. Um, and that magnesium carbonate is permanently sequestered CO2. So to put it simply, we make a waste product that permanently absorbs and sequesters CO2. And it can do so much of it that um, even if we were to use a fossil fuel, we would still be net carbon negative for a typical rock. So how do, and, you, and, how do you plan? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, the important thing here is this isn't something that we have to spend extra money to do because that would you know, violate the cheaper problem, right? This is something that this happens passively. We make a waste product and the waste product is sitting in air will react with CO2 and sequester it. And that's the, you know, the, I think the only way that carbon capture can, and storage can work globally. Hmm. So how do you plan to scale that, that technology? I mean, like uh, now you have the pilot uh, project, like, I mean, how do you see yourself in, uh, in five years? Like what needs to happen to, uh, to scale this, uh, to the pilot project that you have, I mean, at a full scale. Yeah. So it's our belief that, you know, in order to serve the cement industry best, we need to fully de-risk the technology as in, we need to make sure that our, when, if we were to try to sell our process to the conventional cement, cement producers, it is just like equally de-risked as the conventional process. So in order to do that, we need to build a full scale cement plant. Um, so that's the plan. So that's the first steps of the plan. We are going to build our our um, our pilot or demonstration plant um, that we're building now, and we will then turn that into a full scale plant. Um, and um, the full scale plant will, um, you know, be you know produce cement at, at the normal scale will be fully de-risked. And then once we're there, you, you know, we believe that our process will just be a more attractive economic process and the cement companies will want to build cement plants using our process instead of the conventional process. And we can work with all of the cement companies worldwide to for at first have new build cement plants be via our process. And then as you know, as the superior economics become clear, replace the old cement plants with, with our process. Mm -hmm. 
So can you tell us a bit more about like the, the, your competition today? I mean, in, in the EU, in the US, in terms of like, I mean, you mentioned that we're the only one doing uh, what we do and the rest is uh, kind of like trying to figure it out. But is it true or do you see like, I mean, what's the difference? I mean, how, how are you maybe better or like, how do you, you know, how do you compare your solution to the other solution available in the market in terms of efficiency and, uh, and cost? Yeah, so... Um... It's a, it's a it's a good question, and I always you know I think that I should I should preface this with saying that of course we don't know if we're right you know like like every company has their own secrets and and um, has their own technology, and I think that multiple companies trying to do, trying to solve the problem is better for the world, you know because just more shots on goal you probably are going to make a goal. So I, I encourage lots of other people to try to think of clever ways to make cement and, and, and have startups. So, but, you know, our strategy is like, we try to think of all the possible ways um, to make the product to, to, you know, meet the three pillars that I described. And this is the only process that we could figure out how to do that. You know, for us with how we thought about it, we looked at, you know, doing car retrofitting cement plants with carbon capture and storage, and we couldn't figure out how to make that cheaper than the conventional process because you had to, you, you add a lot of cost with new equipment and, and more energy consumption, but you don't add any value that we could figure out. Similarly with, you know, new products, like there's lots of new products that, you know, new types of cement that could be cheaper, but we felt like it would take too long for regulation to happen. So, so you know, that's another strategy that, that we don't do. And then um, the only way that we could figure out to be cheaper is to, you know, co-generate, you know, Portland cement and and supplemental cementitious materials, um, and and no other company does that that I know, and no other company you know is making Portland cement without the process emissions that I know, and I think you know those are key to us, um, and that's why why we think our strategy is is the best strategy. So what's next for uh, Brimstone? I mean, you guys now have like uh, the bank and uh, the financial power to uh, to go to the next step. So what's your roadmap for the next uh, twelve to 24 months. Yeah, so we're basically heads down trying to build um, trying to build our, our demonstration plant or pilot plant. Um, we need and, and um, so the biggest thing is hiring engineering and building. So the biggest thing that we need is we need, you know, engineers and scientists who are, um, you know, skilled chemical engineers that, you know, want to come build plants and skilled scientists that want to do, you know, te test cement or, or, or scale up unit operations, um, you know, that have a passion for climate change um, to come work for, work for us, work with us and, and build and build this plant because we need to show the big, the big, you know, the big piece of risk that we have is, you know, we know the science works, we know the process works. Now do we know, like, can we actually build this at a cost that, you know, the modeling says we can build it at? If we can, then our process is going to be great. And if we can't, then it won't be. And we will know that by building this pilot plant. So last question for this part, and I know we're running out of time, but uh, what's your personal opinion on the, on the climate crisis? I mean, uh, you know, are we doomed? Uh, what would you say to, to people who see is like uh, demoralized by all of those uh, terrible consequences that uh, we see already today? Yeah, I, I'm most concerned for, you know, people in low income countries and non human living things. Um, I think that people in wealthy countries like myself, um, 
in general, we'll be able to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Now, there will certainly be problems, you know, hurricanes, heat waves, fires. These are, these will, you know, these will kill people and that will, and that's, you know, horrible, but it will not kill nearly as many people as in places where there's extreme poverty and they have just much less, you know, resources to deal with. So that's what I'm most concerned about. And, you know, doomed, I don't think that, I don't think that this is something that's going to make humans go extinct, right? I don't think that, that we're doomed in that sense. I think that we're in a lot of trouble and, and you know, water scarcity and, and chain, rapidly changing availability of resources and natural disasters will be a big problem for a lot of people. Um, but again, I think that's the wrong way, like being like, that's the wrong way to like, that attitude of, oh, we're doomed, it doesn't serve anything. You know, in my view, it's like, it's always better to solve the problem later than it is to never solve the problem. So let's all get to work and let's go solve the problem. You know? Let's do it. So how can uh, yeah. our, you know, listener base of uh, expert founders, investors, uh, you know, listening to the show can, can help you? I mean, you mentioned that you guys are hiring. Anything else that uh, you need help with or we can contribute? Yeah, thanks so much for asking. Um, it's really hiring, you know, so, so um if you know of an uh, interested chemical engineer or you are a good an interested chemical engineer or scientist or or or, or something adjacent email us at info it's info at brimstone.energy um uh, or check us out on linkedin or our website www.brimstone.energy um in terms of you know investors you know we were we were freshly capitalized you know you know we're very interested in new money and you know a year or more so please reach out then um and then if, if anyone is interested in you know um thinking about ways that they could use the product or buy the product you know we're very interested in having those conversations so also please send us send us an email uh, yeah thanks so much for asking so any question that i did not ask you that i should have for this uh, first part of the show no i think i think you did a very good job thank you <laughs> thanks do you have, have like three more minutes or you're done um let's see i do have a meeting i just need to remind myself yeah i have three minutes that's uh, but okay, i cool. really can't be any later than that thank you so much uh, for your time and uh your incredible insights on uh, this it's super exciting to see you know uh exciting people like you uh putting all of your time and energy to uh to change uh the cement and uh you know concrete industry i think this is a uh, a fucking challenge if i can use that term <laughs> so con is, congrats yeah. congratulations <laughs> Excited to follow you guys. Yeah, thanks, Gil. I really appreciate you getting the word out there. This is very helpful. Um, so yeah, thanks so much. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbasecamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.